Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. All right, so this Sunday is Mother's Day, guys. I hope you've gotten something nice for your mom. My Mother's Day presents are in my closet because they were supposed to arrive when my mom was visiting a few weeks ago, but alas, they did not come until after she left. So we are working on... on, uh, I think I'll be seeing her again relatively soon. So anyway, you didn't need to know that, but happy Mother's Day to all of the moms out there. You may be listening this weekend on Mother's Day, or you may be listening before Mother's Day. If you're listening before Mother's Day, make sure you are prepared to call your mother, get your mother something, do something nice from your mom. So we're taking a break this week from our regularly scheduled political rantings and ravings, but I never rant or rave, so you know. And we're going to talk about moms for just a little bit. And in particular, I want to share with you the story of one mom. And it might take us a few minutes, so I'm not sure how much we'll get to. But this is a woman who, when I was growing up, outside of my mother and uh, a couple other godly women, that historically speaking, I I have some some historical uh, women that I look up to. And uh, like Gladys Alward, but she, she's more known for what she did as a single woman, and I've always looked up to her. And, uh, and Corey Ten Boom, again, she's known for what she did as a single woman. But when it comes to moms in history, think about, for a minute, if you would, some of the really great moms. And obviously you would say, well, Mary, yes, obviously. Uh, if God chooses you, then you are probably going to be a pretty great mom, right? <laughs> he knows what he's doing. But... I want to talk about someone else. Someone named Susanna. This amazing woman understood that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that ruled the world. She rocked 19 cradles in a time of history where kids were regarded as a bother, as an inconvenience, although sometimes as an asset that could be hired out. The hand that her hand rocking the cradle, those cradles that she rocked had more impact on English history in the 18th century than on any of the contemporaries, and I would argue an incredible impact on this country as well. When she was praised for her child rearing abilities, she often deferred that praise to her mother, who had had 24 children, and Susanna was number 24. So go back with me, if you will, to 17th, 18th century England. The nation was in a state of spiritual decline. Charles II was on the throne with his secret ambitions to return the nation to Roman Catholic control. The loose and immoral lives of the king and other governmental leaders influenced the laws they made and was reflected in the sinfulness 
of the nation's people. Literature, plays, and other forms of entertainment served only to spread the godless fantasies of their authors to the thoughts and actions of common Englishmen. Young children were being sent into the manufacturing industry. They were overworked while paid and taught practically nothing. Deception, overcharging, even abortions were common. Yet the established Church of England offered few, if any, solutions. In fact, it was defending its threatened power and doctrines from attacks of various other denominations. Those outside the Church of England were quite varied in their beliefs and methods, but they were all dubbed dissenters or nonconformists because of one common characteristic. They were not part of the established church. The dissenters included godly men like John Bunyan and the Pilgrims and the Puritans who sailed to America to find liberty. Also numbered in this classification were those who had called for and performed the execution of King Charles I in 1649 and who were now trying to disestablish or purify the Church of England through illegal means. The established church was taking advantage of its position to encourage laws persecuting the nonconformists. However, on January 20th, 1669, one prominent London dissenter had reason to rejoice whatever the circumstances of England were. His wife had just given birth to her 24th child, and she sat gently rocking the baby. Standing proudly beside her was her husband, Dr. Samuel Annesley, a respected London minister who had cemented his position as a dissenter 20 years earlier. It was not the first time he had spoken out against the government, but by one disrespectful comment against the king, he had sacrificed his claim to one of the most prestigious pulpits in London. Since that time, the influential Dr. Annesley had become known as the St. Paul of the Nonconformists, and the Annesley home on a small London road called Spital Yard became a haven for dissenters in England. It was in this environment of serious theological discussion that young Susanna was reared. By the age of 13, having listened to the many educated men who visited her father, Susanna had weighed their cases and felt compelled to side with the established Church of England rather than with the rebellious strain of dissenters to whom she was exposed. Despite the disagreement between them, Dr. Annesley continued to nurture the special relationship he had with his daughter. Among those who called on the hospitable Dr. Annesley was the son of another prominent dissenter and the student and a student at the Reverend Edward Veal's Dissenting Academy. His name was Samuel Wesley. Now, in case you haven't guessed, Samuel Wesley fell in love with young Susanna. Young Susanna, who loved to read and chose to spend hours studying the scripture rather than other uh, uh, novels and similar books because she said they wouldn't contribute to her spiritual growth. And by the way, I'm pulling most of this information from one of my uh, childhood homeschool materials. It's called Wisdom Booklet Number 44, the Preliminary Edition, History Resource C. Ah. Susanna and Samuel settled in Holborn near a small London church where Samuel was offered a post as a curate, which would be an assistant minister in the Church of England. He had a meager salary, and they set up housekeeping and prepared for the birth of their first child. Samuel Wesley Jr. arrived on February 10, 1690. His was a difficult birth for Susanna. In fact, none of her other births were as difficult as his first one, and she would go on to have 18 more children. Wow. In June, when Samuel Jr., 
their first child, was uh, four months old, Mr. Wesley accepted an offer to minister in South Ormsbury, Lincolnshire. It was a long and difficult journey to their new home, especially for Susanna, who had lived only in London for the first 21 years of her life. The years in Lincolnshire were not easy for Susanna. Mr. Wesley did not make enough money to support his growing family, but early in 1691, a baby girl whom they named Susanna was born. Now there were two Susannas and two Samuels in the family, though there was often only one Samuel in the house. As Mr. Wesley was preaching and writing, Mrs. Wesley contentedly cared for her Samuel and Susanna at home. Just before Susanna reached her first birthday, Amelia was born. And soon after Amelia's first birthday, Mr. Wesley was arranging for the burial of baby Susanna. On top of her sorrow over the death of young Susanna, Mrs. Wesley began to be concerned about Samuel Jr. He was four years old, but he had never spoken a word. One day, Samuel Jr. had been out of sight for longer than usual, so his mother began to look for him. She searched all through the house and the garden, calling out for her son, who finally crawled out from under a table where he was playing with the cat and answered in perfect English, "'Here I am, mother.' Relieved and full of joy, Susanna wrapped her arms around the young boy and thanked God. Compared to most children, he had learned to talk late in life, but as with Albert Einstein and other famous men of great intellectual ability throughout history, those first silent years helped Samuel develop a greater capacity for learning. Susanna wrote that he learned so quickly and had such a prodigious memory that I cannot remember to have told him the same word twice. What was yet stranger, any word he had learned in his lesson, he knew wherever he saw it, either in his Bible or any other book, by which means he learned to read well. Susanna's joy was doubled later that year when Annesley and Jedediah were born, twins. She had high hopes for her four children, and she and her husband wanted to provide the best education possible for them. Although they were poor and in debt, Susanna and Samuel scraped together what resources they could and enrolled little Samuel in Mr. John Holland's private school. Mrs. Wesley expected that her brilliant young Samuel would be greatly helped and would learn much in his first school year. That year ended, however, in deep disappointment for Mr. and Mrs. Wesley. Having tried the system and believing that even she, a simple poor housewife, could do better than the British schools, Mrs. Wesley removed Samuel from the school and began to teach him and her other children at home. Years later, they found their decision to be a wise one when the former son's uh, teacher was um, exposed and convicted of some Mm, wicked crimes, shall we say, related to uh, the children in his care. Mrs. Wesley began to homeschool, and it was the character which she imparted to them, not the knowledge which she taught that would ultimately prepare her children for having major roles in the advancement of God's kingdom. As they continued to minister throughout England, the Wesleys would suffer ridicule and torment from the villagers about them who were convicted by their godly disciplines and the truths they preached and lived. In Epworth, where Samuel and Susanna ministered for 40 years, the village people set fire to their home several times, threatened to harm their children, stabbed their cows, crippled the family dog, burned their crops, and were even indirectly responsible for the death of one of their children. Wow. When he was older, John Wesley asked his mother to share her principles of education and child-rearing with him. She said, The writing anything about my way of education I am much averse to do. It cannot, I think, be of service to anyone to know how I used to employ my time and care in bringing up my children. No one can, without renouncing the world in the most literal sense, observe my method. And there are few, if any, that would entirely devote about twenty years of the prime of life in hopes to save the souls of their children, which they think may be saved without so much ado, for that was my principal intention. Wow. 
Should the children were always put into a regular method of living in such things as they were capable of from their birth, as in dressing and undressing, changing their linen, etc. Sadly, many of Susanna's children did not live long enough to benefit from her regular methods of child instruction. A month after the birth of Annesley and Jedediah, Samuel was preparing for their burial. Susanna had borne five children in five years, and three of them had died. Only young Samuel and Amelia remained. Amelia was three years old by now, but Mrs. Wesley was so encouraged by Samuel's progress after almost five years without learning so much as how to speak or read, or uh, yeah, that she purposed uh, to wait until each child turned five years old before helping him begin studying even the alphabet. On each child's fifth birthday, Susanna took the child alone into a room. In one day, she taught him the entire alphabet, upper and lower case, until he knew it thoroughly. Only two of the children required an additional half day of instruction. After learning the letters, each child began reading Genesis 1, mastering it syllable by syllable, word by word, verse by verse, until he could spell and read it perfectly. Within three months, each child could read and speak English very well. Well enough, in fact, to begin the foreign language studies which Mr. Wesley taught them. Mehedabel, another of their children, was reading the Greek New Testament when she was eight years old, just three years after learning the English alphabet. Susanna went on to say, It is almost incredible what may be taught a child in a quarter of a year by a vigorous ap application if he have but a tolerable capacity and good health. Susanna Wesley had said that she had eight key bylaws, which were not simply a list of do's and don'ts for the children, but they were statements of responsibility for both the children and the parents. She recognized that children sometimes lie to avoid punishment. So in order to prevent this habit from forming, Mrs. Wesley promised that if a child charged with wrongdoing confessed and repented, he would not be spanked. No stealing, lying, disobedience, quarreling, or fighting was allowed to pass unpunished. But no child was paddled twice for the same offense. If it was repeated, the matter was, uh, or if he repented rather, the matter was forgiven and not brought up again. Every time a child performed a good deed, especially one done of his own initiative, he was praised and rewarded. When a child performed a good deed with the intention to please, but the deed was done poorly or improperly done, the intentions were praised, and the child was graciously taught how to do better in the future. The rights of property were strictly observed. Even the smallest pin or coin borrowed, even from a sibling, against or without its owner's consent, had to be returned, and the offending child was disciplined. Promises had to be kept, and gifts given could not be taken back unless they were given conditionally and the conditions had not been met. And lastly, in a highly uncommon move for the day, none of Susanna's daughters were taught to work or to sew until they could read very well. She also taught discipline to her children. Discipline, defined by Mrs. Wesley, was strength guided by kindness. She was firm and uncompromising, but also kind and loving. She said when they turned a year old, they were taught to fear the rod and to cry softly, by which means they escaped abundance of correction, which they might otherwise have had. Um, they, had they kept to rigorous schedules and strict rules, but Mrs. Wesley spent time with every one of her children. I remember, she gave birth to 19, I believe, nine survived childhood. She said, I discourse every night with each child by himself on something that relates to his principal concerns. That's incredible. Um, okay, there was something else I want to get in here. Oh, this is, a, this is an interesting part of the story that you're going to need to understand later. Um, when Hetty 
one of their other children, uh, Mehedabel was her full name, when she learned to speak, the first thing Mrs. Wesley taught her was the Lord's Prayer. She did this with each of her children, and every child prayed it every morning and evening. Susanna's most effective method of training her children was to submit to the will of godly authority by her own example. Mrs. Wesley told her children in later years, Your father and I seldom think alike and rarely agree on any particular matter. Yet in positions where they disagreed, Mrs. Wesley recognized the authority and responsibility of her husband and voluntarily submitted to him. But perhaps the greatest period of testing in their marriage began in 1698. One year after Hetty was born, Susanna's ninth child died. In May of 1699, she gave birth to a baby boy who they named John, but he too died soon after. One year later, Benjamin was born. He also died shortly thereafter. In 1701, Susanna had twins and they also died within the year. It was during these years that the rectory caught fire for the first time, and two-thirds of it burned down. During her sufferings and repeated loss of multiple children and loss of her home, the neighbors were of no comfort and rather vandalized their property repeatedly. Samuel was caught up in his ministry outside the home, and Susanna was bedridden with illness. Then, in summer of 1701, Samuel and Susanna had a political disagreement as to the legitimacy of the acting king. William of Orange was not in line for the English throne, but Parliament invited him to become the king after James II abdicated. When Mr. Wesley asked Susanna what she thought, she respectfully presented her case, but did not press the matter and simply gave a, a basic 13-word explanation for what she thought of the man. For some reason, still not fully understood, John Wesley, who told the story years later, claimed that his father lost his temper and rashly vowed that as long as there were two kings, they, he and his wife Susanna, would have two beds. And with that, he left for London. Several months later, however, William III died from injuries incurred when his horse threw him and became queen. Mr. and Mrs. Wesley agreed she was legitimate, and Mr. Wesley was freed of his vow and returned home to his forgiving wife. When he arrived because when he left, his wife was pregnant. The newest addition to the Wesley family, Anne, was there. A year later, in 1703, or sorry, two years later, in 1703, a son was born to the Wesleys. He was the only son to have two names, named for two of the sons they had lost during the tumultuous years. His name was John Benjamin, the only Wesley child with a middle name, and he would be remembered by generations to come as one of the greatest men of faith in history. Throughout her intense suffering, especially during the six years which preceded John's birth, Susanna remained meek and forgiving, submissive to God's will. In a letter she wrote to her husband, or to, excuse me, to her brother in India who had criticized her husband uh, for his behavior, Susanna still faithfully defended him, saying, For better or for worse, I'll take my residence with him. Where he lives, I will live, and where he dies, I will die, and there will be buried. God do so unto me, and more also, if aught but death part him and me. In 1704, for the first time in over 15 years, a year passed without a birth or a death in the Wesley household. There was still a sense of loss, however. Samuel Jr. left for Westminster School at the age of 14 to begin his formal education to be ordained by the Church uh, of England. On May 8, 1706, one year to the day after the birth of the Wesley's child Martha, or excuse me, after the birth of Wesley's most recent child, another child, Martha, was welcomed into the family. In December of the following year, Susanna had another child. He was born prematurely, but his name was Charles, Charles Wesley, and he would eventually become one of the most respected hymn writers in all of church history. 
One winter morning, a year after Charles' birth, six-year-old John Wesley was awakened by light shining through the curtains drawn about his bed. He was unusually tired and no doubt desired more sleep than he had received. It was actually almost midnight. John said have slept on for hours and had been trained and taught by his mother, especially, that there was a time when it was time to get up and that he was to stay in bed until it was time to get up. But Susanna had also instilled in her children a desire to do what was right, beyond the desire simply to obey. And so John did not give thought to the idea of sleeping in. Instead, because he believed it to be light outside, he realized it must be time to get up and awaken. He didn't realize that he was the only person in the room. His father was the only one who had heard John call that night. When John got up, he realized that his siblings had all already left the room. The parents had come in and a nurse and evacuated all the children as their house was on fire, but John had slept through the commotion and no one realized that he hadn't got out. When his father recognized it, he tried to get back in. He tried to get through the doors. He tried to come up the stairs, but the fire closed in around him and he was forced out of the building. They quickly made their way, the family, through the hall downstairs, but the door... Um, sorry. I got, I got lost in the, in the story here. The children had escaped through the windows and the small garden door, but Susanna, who was eight months pregnant, was not able to use either of those exits. She attempted several times to break through the wall of fire blocking the doorway, but each time she was driven back. In this distress, I besought our blessed Savior for help and then waded through the fire, which did me no further harm than a little scorching of my hands and face. The rest of the family outside, Samuel could hear John crying upstairs. Pierced by the realization that one of his children was still in the midst of the inferno, Samuel attempted to beat back the flames and work his way back up the stairs again, but his efforts were in vain. Realizing the hopelessness of the situation, Samuel made his way out of the quickly disintegrating building and dropped to his knees and begged God for his son. John opened the curtains enough to recognize the imminent danger he was in. He made a dash for the nursery door, but the flames in the hallway would not permit him passage. He then retreated to the window where he was seen by his family and the neighbors gathered in the yard below. One of the onlookers proposed to fetch a ladder, but there would not be time. Without a moment to spare, a large, sturdy neighbor braced himself against the wall. Another man named Clark climbed up onto his shoulders and reached into the second floor window of the parsonage, grasping little John from the nursery just seconds before the entire roof collapsed. John so vividly remembered the fire which consumed the parsonage and almost took his life on that night that years later he was able to record a detailed account of this event which so deeply influenced his life. Blessed by having come so close to losing another son, but seeing him spared so miraculously, Samuel cried out, Come, neighbors, let us kneel down. Let us give thanks to God. He has given me all my eight children. Let the house go. I am rich enough. John also recognized God's claim on his life because of the fire and referred to himself, as is written in Zechariah 3.2, a brand plucked from the fire. Now I want to tell you one more thing about Susanna Wesley before we wrap up this part of the program and wrap up the program as well. But each morning at 5 o'clock, Susanna held family devotions with her children. They would read the day's psalms and a chapter from the Old Testament in groups of two. The eldest child with the youngest who could speak, the second oldest with the next youngest, and so on. They would then have a time of prayer, followed by a family breakfast. They would, after breakfast, begin their studies, all of which were centered around Scripture. 
Mrs. Wesley wrote the few textbooks that they used besides the Bible. And after six hours of study, the family closed their school day as they had begun by singing psalms. At five o'clock in the evening, the children read the psalms and a chapter from the New Testament, while Mrs. Wesley met individually with each child on their designated evenings. At six o'clock after family prayer, supper was served. Shortly after, the children went to bed. Now this woman was absolutely remarkable. And when I think about mothers in history, this is who I think of. This woman who was the youngest of 24 children, who married a man who quite frankly, I, and I left out much of this story, but uh, Mr. Wesley was not, mm, he was so caught up in his ministry that he often neglected his family. And I, I didn't cover a lot of that, but it was it's a very interesting account to read, and you can read. There have been many books written about their lives, but in Seeking God's Kingdom, Samuel Wesley tried to change the Church of England, by any any and in doing so, neglected his children. Susanna concentrated on her family, changed the church and the nation, and influenced the world. And I, I left out, there's so much more I wanted to tell you about her. She started her own uh, Bible study in her home for children. She basically started a children's Sunday school class. The children's Sunday school class went so well that neighbors, mothers, began asking if they could come. And so the mothers began coming. And then whole families began coming to Susanna's uh, Sunday schools that she held for children because she was such an effective communicator. In fact, Susanna Wesley, in an era where there was very little, essentially no outreach being done to anyone who was unchurched, Susanna Wesley was reaching masses of people. Susanna Wesley had more people attending her Sunday school class in her home on a, on a weeknight than there were in the pews of their local church on a Sunday morning, which, by the way, was not her, her husband's church, but the, the which, again, the, the whole dynamic with her husband is, is part of the story I'm not going to get into, but she stood by her husband, who was uh, not always supportive, very rarely home, and raised nine children who loved and served Jesus. In fact, two of her children changed the world as we know it. And you're, you know them, whether you realize it or not. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote somewhere between six and 9,000 hymns. The number is debated, but you've probably sung them before. Around Christmas time, if you've ever sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that's Charles Wesley wrote that. Susanna's son, Charles Wesley. If around Easter you've ever sung Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Susanna's son, Charles Wesley, wrote that. If you've ever sung And Can It Be, Susanna's son, Charles Wesley, wrote that. Charles Wesley, uh, the only competition in, in church hymnology for Charles Wesley would maybe be Isaac Watts and Fanny Crosby, but Charles Wesley was an incredible uh, man who did great things. He did uh, abundance of ministry, but is best remembered for the literally thousands of hymns that he wrote. Then you had Susanna's son, John Wesley, known as the father of Methodism. And remember, something to remember is that Methodists, in, when John Wesley cre created Methodism, if you will, Methodists were different uh, than, they, than they are today, and much in the same way that most denominations are different than they are today. And his ministry uh, was very impactful. Again, this was a time when no one was reaching the unchurched of England. 
John Wesley changed that. John Wesley changed England. But not only did he change England, and we'll get back to that in a moment, but John Wesley spent two years in America because he believed that God wanted him to be in the colonies reaching the Native Americans and ministering to Christians in America. And in fact, let me see if I can find his, uh, his quote here. Um, uh, George Whitfield came to the United States, well, it wasn't the United States at that time, but George Whitfield came to the United States came here as John Wesley was leaving. And George Whitfield, who led the Great Awakening, who literally transformed the trajectory of our country, he said, the good Mr. John Wesley, what he has done in America is inexpressible. His name is very precious among the people, and he has laid a foundation that I hope neither men nor devils will ever be able to shake. Wow. Wesley some have said, was the schoolmaster that led people to Whitfield and ultimately to Jesus. And I don't have time to tell you about John Wesley's life today, except that he rode far enough on horseback to preach the gospel that he could have circled the earth ten times. He preached over 40,000 sermons, riding over 250,000 miles. He also wrote some of the all-time best-selling medical texts because he believed that God was as concerned about our earthly life as he is with our heavenly one. Obviously our salvation primarily, but that God wants us to live uh, a productive, healthy life on earth. His book went through 32 editions, was one of the most widely read books in all of England. Um, he uh, uh, he uh, uh, he studied what Benjamin Franklin wrote on the physics of electricity, wrote his own treatise on electricity, and Benjamin Franklin printed Wesley's sermon on free grace and other sermons by Wesley's friend and fellow preacher George Whitfield, but the two never met each other. He's also sometimes referred to as the father of the uh, religious paperback. So sermons, tracts, pamphlets, over 5,000 items. John Wesley penned short religious saying. So if you've ever handed out a track, John Wesley was the guy that made that popular to have a small pamphlet. And and others did as well, but Wesley was hugely uh, intr- instrumental in this. He was a supporter of abolitionism, a friend of John Newton and William Wilberforce. He wrote a pamphlet on slavery titled Thoughts Upon Slavery in 1774. He said, Liberty is the right of every human creature as soon as he breathes the vital air. No human law can deprive him of that right which he derives from the law uh, of nature. He also influenced George uh, George Whitfield. And uh, and as you know, as we already, as we already talked about, Whitfield there... Um, and spurred the transatlantic debate on slavery as well, encouraging uh, Newton and William Wilberforce in England. If you know their stories, watch the movie Amazing Grace. So powerful, so good. But Wesley was instrumental in their lives as well. He was not welcomed in most churches in England, and so he would preach in the open air to tens of thousands of people, sometimes standing on his father's graves. Grave, sorry, he only had one. He regularly preached three times a day. We know that through Wesley's life, he left 294 preachers, 71,668 British members, 19 missionaries, five mission stations, and 43,265 American members with 198 preachers in the colonies at the time of his death. That is an absolutely... Incredible work. 
but Charles Wesley's hymns and John Wesley's influence. And, and again, I, I can't, I wish I had time today to tell you about how John Wesley transformed England. England was a different place because of the life and ministry of John Wesley. He reached people that were unreached. He was the missionary to England. In fact, his, his work was so, uh, is still so recognized in that country that in 2002, he was listed at number 50 on the BBC's list of the 100 greatest Britons that was based on a poll of the British public. That's pretty incredible over 200 years later. But John and Charles Wesley were the fruit of one mother's tireless service to her family. Her hand rocked the cradle. Her hand changed the world. She ministered to her community but first she ministered to her children. She ministered to her church. But first she ministered to her children. She ministered to her country by ministering to her children. And she changed the world through the children that she raised. And, you know, it's easy when we're 200 years removed to look back at someone like Susanna Wesley and to see what happened as a result of her life and her ministry. We often don't get that privilege in today's day and age. We, in a world of instant information, we tend to just think about the here and now. But moms, I want you to know that you are laying a foundation that what you do is drastically important. That you are changing the world when you rock that cradle. That what you do with your family and your children impacts eternity in ways that you may never know. But God knows. And history will see the results and the fruit of your labor. And I just want to give a special shout out to my mom. I'm so grateful for the years of her life that she invested in me and in my siblings and my, my dad as well. But it's Mother's Day, so we're focusing on mom today. My mom homeschooled us. My mom instilled in us a, a love for knowledge, a passion for truth, an understanding of scripture. She required us to read the Bible as part of our education, she taught us to read good books. She wouldn't allow us to watch excessive TV. She wouldn't excessive TV. And but some of you think that that means excessive. I'm 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 talking about like we watched Little House on the Prairie, and there was no cable in our home the entirety of my uh, childhood, and there was no streaming at that point in our lives either. So so it was coming from Blockbuster, or we owned it on DVD, right? But we did get to watch football sometimes if the Broncos were playing, which growing up in central Pennsylvania, rarely were the Broncos ever playing on one of the three stations that we got through our antenna. But sometimes Andy Griffith was, which was pretty cool because we were allowed to watch that. Anyway, my mom made decisions for our family. And well, again, my parents together, but focus on mom today, made decisions for how we would be raised that were not popular, that were misunderstood that were often ridiculed and mocked sometimes by the people that you would have thought would have been or should have been the most supportive. But she didn't waver. She chose to invest in her life in us. She chose to raise us in a way that would glorify God. She chose to invest in us 
rather than anything else. My mom's pretty smart. She could have done a lot of things. But she chose to spend her time with us. And I'm so grateful for not only the education that she gave us, but for the life that she gave us. And I don't just mean by bringing us into this world, though I am grateful for that. But mom didn't just give us an education. Mom taught us how to live and how to live like Jesus and represent him in a world desperately in need of salt and light. And mom, that's, that's your primary thing. That's what God wants you to do. Now, maybe, maybe you're not homeschooling your children, or maybe you are. But your main thing is your children. Your main thing is to teach your children how to live in a world that is, quite frankly, focused on death. Teach your kids how to live, both in this world for Jesus and how to have eternal life in the world to come. That is the greatest investment, your greatest privilege as a mom, and we are so grateful to you and can't wait to see how history records the results of your hand rocking the cradle. Happy Mother's Day. Join us on Sunday as we celebrate our moms here at Liberty, 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. Look forward to seeing you then. Have a great week, everyone.